welcome everyone. This is Christy Balsells, and it is the 6th of March, 2015. Glad to have you joining us today, and our special guest speaker is Dr. Sumit Parikh from the Cleveland Clinic. He is the director of the Cleveland Clinic Neurogenetics, Metabolic, and Mitochondrial Disease Program, and also importantly, past president of the Mitochondrial Medicine Society. We're going to be talking with him today about some really wonderful um, information and research that was done by the Mitochondrial Medicine Society to try to identify what current standards are and what consensus there is amongst doctors who specialize in mitochondrial medicine for things like diagnosis and treatment. And uh, I think of it kind of like a, you know, State of the Union for Mitochondrial Disease. So um, welcome, Dr. Parikh. We're really glad to have you with us today. No, no thank you so much for inviting me to speak. Um, and um, for those of you who are looking at the slide deck, there's 55 slides, but I talk very fast, and I usually um, breeze through many of them or fly through many of them. So, um, Dr. Parikh, before you go any further, I'm going to actually remind everybody who's listening where they can find those slides. So okay. forgive me for interrupting you, but I want to make sure everyone can find them. So if you go to mitoaction.org and you look at the page announcing today's discussion under the recent news, it says Mitochondrial Medicine Society Publications. Or if you're listening later to this as a recording, you can just search that term, Mitochondrial Medicine Society Publications. That'll take you to the page where we're announcing today's call, and in the box that says Join Us, you'll see a link to view the slides. That'll open them right up, and you'll be able to listen to them at your own pace and follow the slides as Dr. Parikh is talking today. So, Dr. Parikh, forgive me for interrupting you, but thank you so much, and we're ready to get started when you are. Oh, perfect. No. So for those of you who don't know, there is this organization called the Mitochondrial Medicine Society, and just like many medical org, uh, societies, we are meant to be a professional organization, so it's, it's meant for physicians as well as um, nurse practitioners, nurses, medical students, residents, um, all interested in mitochondrial medicine. Um, it's a relatively younger organization, um, probably about at most 15 years old, and um, it is a relatively small organization, as you already know. There aren't that many uh, physicians or clinicians that are interested in mitochondrial medicine. Um, but at the same time, um, it tries to remain active, especially in the last five years or so. And so um, each president, as they come on board, you know, are kind of tasked with um, coming up with projects for the group um, for something new to look at in the world of mitochondrial medicine. Um, and so one of the things that had always interested and bothered me is that, you know, you can unfortunately go to five different centers and come back with at least two or three different diagnoses with people not always agreeing on whether a patient uh, had primary mitochondrial disease or not. Um, so the first step, uh, you know, that we envisioned uh, is, you know, looking into, is that true? Is there discrepancy in how mitochondrial disease is diagnosed, how mitochondrial medicine is practiced? And if that's true, which we suspected it was, what can we do to help eliminate some of those differences to the best of our abilities, or at least start that um, movement along? And so that, that 
uh, brought about this project that started up back in 2012 and has continued and just finished this year um, that we kind of call the, the MMS surveys followed by the consensus project. And I'm going to quickly walk you guys through that, and we're not going to walk through every slide in detail, but just so that you get a general idea of what happened and, of course, getting down to the nitty-gritty where, as patients and families, what is going to be important to you. Um, so what we looked at is how is mitochondrial medicine practiced in North America? Is there consensus? Is there a need for consensus criteria? Those were some of the initial questions that we wanted answered. And um, so we sent out invitations to a variety of metabolic and neurologic societies. Everywhere that we knew, um, we had um, people who were uh, practicing mitochondrial medicine uh, possibly um, available. And we received 37 initial volunteers. And then over time, you know, one of the project uh, mandates was is that you had to participate in all the surveys so that we, we could have a complete set of data. And out of 37, five people stopped participating, and we ended up with 32 uh, physicians, nurse practitioners who completed the survey. Um, on slide four is a map of where all the practice locations were. And we felt that we captured at least, I think, I want to say 80 to 90 percent of the mitochondrial centers across the country. It was definitely not um, all of them, but it was most of them. And um, so we had representatives throughout North America, including two individuals who were in Canada. Um, and we had a variety of specialists because a variety of specialists run mitochondrial centers and clinics, including what are called biochemical geneticists, uh, neurologists, people who specialize in neurometabolism or neurogenetics, and clinician, clinical geneticists as well. Um, and so there were a variety of questions we asked, and we're not going to go through every question, but I'm going to kind of give you the general sense of some of the information that we found is that, one, many of us, while we're even just pediatric trained, um, see pediatric and adult patients because there is nobody else available to see adult mitochondrial patients. The other thing is that, you know, most clinicians, especially consultants, when we see patients, we're given anywhere from 40 minutes to 60 minutes to see a patient, but we all agree that mitochondrial patients take much more than that just because of their complexity or because of how long they've been having issues. And we found that only a quarter of us were seeing patients for less than 60 minutes. Most of us were spending anywhere from 60 to 120 minutes with at least, you know, half the patient, half of us um, allotting 60 to 90 minutes per patient. Follow-up visits are a completely separate story. Most doctors are given anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes to see a follow-up patient. Um, we felt that that was not enough time for mitochondrial disease patients and that whether or not we were allotted the time, most of us were spending half an hour to 50 minutes um, on follow-up visits. Um, and so we quickly realized that these patients are taking much more time than our administration, the powers that be, expect us to be taking for them. Preparation for these patients was also uh, much more arduous because, again, most of all of you come with stacks of medical records, and most of us need to be judicious and review those medical records ahead of time. Um, and so we were all spending a good amount of time with, again, slide eight showing kind of the distribution of the amount of time record preparation would take. And so the summary was that, yeah, mitochondrial clinics in general require a lot of time from the clinician. Um, Pre-screening of patients was done routinely. There was an advanced review of records by not, almost 95% of us. Um, most of us try to set up multiple specialty appointments, especially when families are coming from out of town. So whenever possible, we do try and uh, coordinate multiple specialty appointments so multiple trips aren't required. But it also helps us 
having a gastroenterologist we trust or an ophthalmologist we trust and know who is also experienced in mitochondrial disease patients see our patients and say, yes, we're seeing what you are or we're seeing what is being described helps us um, and sometimes even sets uh, us in different directions when they find different things. They say, you know what? No, we don't see this the way we have in most of our mitochondrial patients. We need to go looking for other things. Um, we often use what we call physician extenders, whether it be nurses or nurse practitioners or physician assistants. We often will review complex cases with colleagues. Um, and some of us are so strict about making sure we have records ahead of time that half of the physician surveyed will cancel a visit if they don't have records to review in advance. And if I can make bare home, um, you know, any point, um, one of them is that medical records are very, very important. You're showing up for a second or third or fifth opinion with us not having any records ahead of time to review is basically a waste of your time and the physician's time. Your uh, family member or you yourself have already gone through so much, often very good, accurate testing, um, and there's so much valuable information in that testing that it is just not fair to the person evaluating you for us to not have access to that um, definitely during the visit, but because there's often so much to review ahead of the visit. The other thing I warn every family is that the medical record system is an utter mess. It's very hard to get these records, that if you can, in the moment, start collecting them, you know what, the doctor's notes are not as important, but data, test results, blood, urine, scans, um, EMGs, EEGs, if you start collating either a, an actual physical binder uh, with all of this stuff or a virtual binder, what, you know, scanning it to a PDF and putting it on a thumb drive, um, it's very, very important. And that way, when somebody does need access to any of that, you can easily and quickly get it to them. Um, and the farther away you get from the time point of having had that done um, and trying to get access to it, you know, going through a medical records system in the hospital, it often gets expensive or it often ends up um, being much more difficult or challenging to get. All right, moving on from that, we also looked at when somebody starts a workup, the type of labs that we end up obtaining, and that's summarized in um, slide number 10. And um, these are things that you may or may not be familiar with, and we don't necessarily need to go into detail. We also looked at the types of genetic studies people are doing and whether, you know, they're all doing the same thing. And unfortunately, no. Every clinician or many clinicians were kind of doing their own thing and not necessarily practicing the same way. Um, and we all knew that there was a bit of a gold standard out there of how you were supposed to be practicing, but not everybody was doing it. Um, then we also moved on and looked at how we perceived the various laboratories were. So there's a lot of labs out there, companies, that are offering mitochondrial tests, genetic tests and non-genetic tests, muscle biopsies. And we all know in the community, in the medical community, that some of these lab companies are more on the up and up than others. Some do a much better job of um, sorting the wheat from the chaff and pointing out true positive results and helping kind of make the less important results not be as concerning appearing. And there are other companies that do a horrible job of that. And every little thing they find, they're putting on the report and putting it with uh, kind of an equal value with important findings. And so we actually did 
also query individuals on that, and for a variety of reasons. That was actually not published in the paper, but that was available. And the other thing we did as part of the Mitochondrial Medicine Society is that every lab that we evaluated, we told them about this. Said, you know what, go online if you want to read how your lab company did and what we felt about them. Um, you can go here because maybe there will be some food for thought. Maybe there will be, you know, targeted areas for improvement that your group may want to consider. We then looked at muscle biopsies, what people's thoughts were on muscle biopsies, whether they found them valuable, um, how they were interpreted, and we found a lot of variability there as well, and that's on slide 13. We also looked at whether people were using what are called diagnostic criteria. So, okay, you've got a patient, you've worked them up for mitochondrial disease, but the results are, you know, not a home run. It might be, it may not be a mitochondrial disease. Then most of us are taught we're supposed to rely on diagnostic criteria, but it turned out only 60% of us were using diagnostic criteria, and therefore the variability. The other 40% were kind of doing more what their gut said. You know what? I think this might be. I think this might not be. And there are groups of us who are stricter about using diagnostic criteria and stricter about using the mitochondrial label, and I'll try to talk a little bit about that a bit later. But uh, And then there were those of us who are much freer with the label, um, and there are upsides and downsides to both of these approaches. So one of the things that's happened in the field is that there was a time when any time we found a blip of um, a lab report or a lab finding that said that the mitochondria were not working well. A muscle biopsy showed that, yeah, you know what, the mitochondria are not working well through complex one. Mitochondrial disease was being used as a label. And this was much more happening, um, happening a lot more back in the 80s, 90s, even in the early 2000s. And as genetics got smarter, we learned that a lot of our patients were getting mislabeled or misdiagnosed. That all our blood, urine, and muscle findings, including muscle biopsy abnormalities that suggested the mitochondria were not healthy, were sometimes not being caused by mitochondrial disease, but they were being caused by a whole slew of other genetic or other conditions. Uh, we learned that, you know what, if you're being poisoned by um, things like cyanide or arsenic, if you have other genetic syndromes like RET or um, Alzheimer's, uh, something called inclusion body myositis, or if you have mitochondrial disease, the muscle biopsy results could look awfully the same. And as we learned all of that, we all started realizing almost half the patients in our clinics were being mislabeled or misdiagnosed with primary mitochondrial disease. We needed to open our toolkits up, testing toolkits, and start looking for what else they might have. Um, we threw many families for a loop when we did this because they had been walking the path of a mitochondrial disease diagnosis for several years or many years. Um, but in the end, it often ended up helping because we ended up getting families and patients on the right path. Your child or you do not have a progressive or degenerative condition. You have this other condition, which actually, it's chronic, but the outcome is a lot better. Um, and sometimes it was not always good news. Sometimes we did find things that were worse, uh, but that was not always the case. Um, so as this movement uh, kind of, you know, took steam and most of us got stricter about a mitochondrial disease label or diagnosis, um, we found that 37% of us require a genetic label, a genetic diagnosis, before we're going to say you have mitochondrial disease. Not everybody, but many people, um, that just having blood, urine, or muscle abnormalities was not enough. 
because we know other things can cause the mitochondria to get unhealthy, those other diseases I mentioned, the poisoning from arsenic, all those other things, it turns out we know that the mitochondria are prone to being affected or impacted by all these other influences, and the label that was put on that type of a mitochondrial problem is called mitochondrial dysfunction. Mitochondrial dysfunction means you don't have mitochondrial disease. You don't have a progressive or degenerative disorder. You have something else going on in the body. It's affecting other organs, and it's also affecting how your mitochondria are working. Um, the good thing about that is that most likely you don't have a progressive or degenerative disorder. You don't have to worry about your heart and your hearing and your vision getting worse. It's more just whatever that other disease condition is. So mitochondrial dysfunction has been a relatively newer talked about concept in the medical field, and that's something that turns out that every single person we surveyed, they absolutely believe in. We weren't quite sure what we had to do with mitochondrial dysfunction. So if you have Alzheimer's or diabetes for 30 years um, and or um, had chemotherapy and your mitochondria are a little unhealthier, do you need to treat that person with mitochondrial supplements or vitamins? We don't even know if they work in the first place. Is that something you need to do? And, and most of us were not sure. Only a third of us thought that you needed to consider treatment of those things. The other people said, we need more data. We need to learn more. Um, there has been debate and talk about whether some patients, not all, with autism have some mitochondrial dysfunction. And we weren't sure whether that was primary or secondary. Most of us, almost 90% of us, weren't sure what to do with mitochondrial dysfunction in autism patients, especially when it was isolated. Um, and um, we weren't quite sure what mitochondrial autism looks like. Can you tell mitochondrial dysfunction in autism apart from patients who just have traditional autism, which is, um, you know, we are now learning usually because of a DNA-based or genetic cause. We know that the muscle biopsy can have false positive results and false negative results, and so we surveyed whether what people thought about that, and that's in slide 18 and um, 19. And then we also looked at skin biopsy because we know that those can have false negative and false positive results. And we found that there was a lot of skew as to what people's perception was, as to whether these things had um, accuracy or not. Um, we then, in part two of the survey, starting on slide 21, started looking at how people treated patients who did have known mitochondrial problems and mitochondrial disease. And we looked at the variety of testing that was obtained routinely. That's in slide 30. And then we also looked at how um, people participate in the community in trying to increase awareness of mitochondrial disease, and that's in slide 31. And it turns out that most of us are involved in some way in trying to either increase uh, knowledge about mitochondrial disease by giving educational talks and lectures um, and or participating in advocacy groups or with advocacy groups. But overall, we found that there were similarities in practice but a general lack of consensus, that there were too many people, very good, smart people, but too many of us doing our own thing, that we found that the way we structure clinics, organize our clinics, um, our perception of which lab companies are good and not so good, um, that we all require more time with these patients and that we need more adult-trained experts, we all agreed on that. But how a patient got diagnosed, the testing that was done when somebody was worried about mitochondrial disease, how these tests were interpreted, is this abnormal or normal? And when do you use that label of mitochondrial disease? There was complete variability there. And then most importantly, there were problems with treatment. And I didn't even go into treatment because it was all over the place. I, 
trying to think. Yeah, no, I didn't include them here, but pretty much the problem was when we looked at things like the mitochondrial cocktail, every physician had their own version of the mitochondrial cocktail. Every physician had their own way of dosing these things, um, and there was very little consensus on what was absolutely needed other than coenzyme Q10. Coenzyme Q10, there was some agreement on that most everybody needed to use, but a lot of other things, carnitine, B vitamins, alpha-lipoic acid, there were people who loved those things. There were people who just never even used them. And, um, you know, as, as a patient, as a family going through this, this is all very confusing, right? You go somewhere, you're following with a physician you're happy with, then you step away just because there are more issues going on and maybe you step away for a second opinion and you go and see this other person and they might come at you and say, your child doesn't have mitochondrial disease. We're actually worried about all this other stuff. Did your physician look for that? And you don't necessarily know. And or they say, oh, your child does have mitochondrial disease, but I treat it differently. Here's what we need to do. And, you know, that, that's a challenge. That's a challenge that happens in many areas of medicine, but many areas of medicine have developed these things called consensus criteria to allow for doctors to do things until we get smarter in relative agreement. And so because there was all this lack of consensus, the group of us who were pursuing all this information said, we need to now look and try and form consensus. So the officers of the MMS from 2012 to 2014, and they're pictured in slide number 35, went ahead and said we needed to develop consensus. And it turns out there's a variety of ways in medicine to develop consensus. One is what's called evidence-based. There's science backing up everything you do. And science changes and evolves, so it's not that any of this is set in stone. We all have been hearing recently about how we're learning High cholesterol levels, to a certain degree, may not be that bad for many of us, and it might be okay. Everybody doesn't need to knock their cholesterol down less than 200. And we're also learning that salt isn't necessarily bad for everybody. But, you know, for about 15, 20 years, we used to think that stuff, and so consensus criteria got developed, saying, based on evidence, that, yeah, you need low cholesterol levels and low salt intake. So that was that's one way. The other is what's called eminence space, that there's a lot of smart people in the room because they're older, they're wiser, um, they were our mentors, and we do exactly what they want. But, you know, that's not always the best way either. Committee-based, which is, you know, forming a little group and everybody meeting, but the people with the stronger personalities sometimes win in those cases, and that's not true consensus. Um, and then there's the individual approach, which is unfortunately where mitochondrial medicine has been this whole time, which is I'll decide. You know what? I've read the literature. I'm a smart person. I can decide. I don't care what, um, you know, my friend or colleague across the um, street or in the next state is doing. The, con the evidence-based consensus is based on there's something called Oxford levels of evidence and things that are of higher scientific value are given more power and more emphasis. But it turns out in mitochondrial disease, we do not have um, that level of science, not yet. So there were a few different methods created and something called the Delphi method was created. And you guys may not care about this as much, but it allowed for people where we have some science, but not enough, some evidence, but not enough to try and come up with some consensus without one person or a few individuals getting to pull the pack in one direction or another. And so we use this Delphi method, and it's been used for a variety of rare diseases and um, in a variety of conditions. And how this works is you form a large committee of less than 20 people, 20 people who are considered experts in the field. 
they form subgroups. Each subgroup is assigned a topic of, in, for our case, mitochondrial disease. They review it, and they create a summary of that data, the most up-to-date data available. And based on the summary they create, we then survey the bigger group. Every person who participates reads this expert summary and then answers some survey about how, what testing should we be sending, what treatment should we be using, when do we use diagnostic criteria. And then we survey, and then we see if there's consensus. Do the majority of people, 85% or more, agree? And if they do, you're done. If you don't have consensus, you then show everybody what everybody answered. Was there a skew? Was there um, a poor distribution of scores? Um, and then you then go back and try, and now that everybody sees everybody else's answer, does that change their mind? You might say, oh, well, you know what? Yeah, all of my friends and colleagues are choosing choice A. Maybe I'm not doing the right thing. I should be choosing A. I'm okay changing my answer. And then you see if you get consensus. And then, of course, you know, we went through hundreds of things. And there are always things where we couldn't reach consensus. And so then we had a face-to-face -face discussion at the mitochondrial uh, meeting that happened um, last um, June. And um, we went through each point where there was no consensus to say, can we come up with consensus or do we not have enough knowledge? We need to just say, there's not enough knowledge or research. We need to wait before we can comment on this. And the good thing about this whole method is that you can come up with quantifiable consensus. It's less personality driven. It leaves room for disagreement. And it allows, because it's done virtually, it allows for you to include people from all over the country. The bad thing is that it is not completely based in science. Um, and so there is possibility of having bias. You know, we're picking a panel of experts. The mitochondrial medicine community is relatively small. Maybe all the people who participate are the people participating on all the committees always, and we all get along, and we're going to have bias because we're, we are all seeing things in one way. And just having an average, just having the majority of people agree is not always the scientific truth. So even though we might have consensus on something, it may turn out as we get smarter scientifically, we may learn that we were still doing the wrong thing. Um, and then I can definitely attest to this, getting 18 or 20 physicians to complete all of this work virtually is, is definitely not fun, and it is very much like hurting a group of cats, um, sometimes with threats um, on the telephone. <laughs> so, um, so on slide 43 is our consensus criteria working group. You may know some of your, these names. Some of these people may be your uh, clinicians. Um, and we had people who had a variety of specialty interests, including things like anesthesia, because we needed anesthesiologists who could help us create summaries on the influences of anesthetics in mitochondrial disease. But the rest were people that you would expect, geneticists, biochemical geneticists, neurologists. Um, and we included nurse practitioners as well. And that led to this document that um, is um, now published online at Genetics and Medicine. And it's basically the diagnosis and management of mitochondrial disease, a consensus statement. Um, and it is still considered in press. I think it hasn't come out in print yet. It's supposed to come out in print next month or the month after. And what did we look at? We looked at, um, on slide 46, we looked at what testing should somebody do in blood, urine, or spinal fluid when we were worried about mitochondrial disease. You're worried about mitochondrial disease? What DNA testing should be sent? When you send 
tissue, skin, or muscle? What testing should you absolutely send, and how would you interpret all of this? Um, when you're getting scans, what kind of scans should you get? If you're treating strokes in mitochondrial disease, what do you call a stroke, and how do you treat it? What type of treatment options are there? Should we be using exercise? What do we recommend? Should we be using anesthesia? Is there a treatment that we should be giving during illness? Um, and for all these you know, vitamins, supplements, um, can we make any recommendations? And I'm going through, you know, I've cut and paste the recommendations in the remainder of the slides, not because we're going to go through each one, but just so that you have reference to, uh, you can access these um, even if you can't get your hands on the actual article, um, because there are often paywalls put up that prevent um, non-academic individuals from getting to these articles. So we looked at when you are starting a mitochondrial evaluation, should you look at blood, urine, and spinal fluid? And the answer is absolutely, but there are some precautions we have to take. So there are some lab tests that you have to automatically get. We should do the testing in certain situations. Like, you know what, for mitochondrial disease, you should be testing somebody after eating. There's a whole slew of doctors out there who are getting this, these tests done when a person is fasting. And there are times to get fasting metabolic labs, but not necessarily for mitochondrial disease. And then how we should interpret these labs and what necessarily, you know, should we make of these results. Um, so this basically outlined on slide 47 what tests we should be getting. We also made recommendations for what type of genetic testing, DNA testing we should be getting, and how we should look at DNA, that we should not necessarily be doing this in a piecemeal fashion, and what technology should be used so that we should leave out the labs that are not using the most up-to-date technology. If we do have muscle available, um, what, should, what DNA testing should we be doing in muscle? And so we made recommendations for that. And then we did look at, you know what, if you do get a muscle biopsy, please, 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 you know, send these five or six tests. You absolutely need to do this. And what other considerations do you need to take? Forget frozen or fresh biopsies. Just please send these five or six tests, and this is how you might want to interpret these tests. We also made some recommendations on, if you're getting pictures of the brain, what you want to look at and what you might want to measure. Because there are so many problems when mitochondrial muscle biopsies are done, we created special tables that were um, above and beyond just the consensus criteria on um, things that clinicians should pay attention to, surgeons who are getting the muscle should pay attention to, so that mistakes aren't made. And we also made very specific recommendations on how to interpret the muscle biopsy. We then moved to treatment, and we looked at how to treat mitochondrial strokes because we do have some evidence for that. And so we made recommendations on the use of what's called L-arginine therapy, which we know can prevent um, mitochondrial strokes in patients with MELAS, might help patients with mitochondrial strokes from other reasons, and how we should treat these people who are having strokes in the acute period and maybe what we could consider for prevention. We looked at the preventative testing that um, we wanted to obtain on a routine basis. Um, oh, you know what? I just ended up skipping. I'm going to quickly go ahead. For some reason, my slides moved backwards. There we go. Something uh, on. There you go. Is it something on our end, Dr. Parikh? Or are you? No, you I good? think it's on my end. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, Great. I should be on slide 52 now. Okay. And um, so then we also looked at exercise. So, you know, I think there's a lot of talk about how we can treat mitochondrial disease. And, and unfortunately, the truth is right now is we have a lot of wonderful things we can do to improve quality of life and do symptom-based treatment, but we don't have that magical pill yet that can help reverse unhealthy mitochondria, except we now know that exercise very much can help. And so the section on exercise-based recommendations was pretty lengthy, and we ended up making a variety of recommendations on exercise in the patient with mitochondrial disease. We also know that anesthesia can have ill effects in not all, but some mitochondrial patients. And so we made some lengthy recommendations on what cautions should be taken when patients are receiving anesthesia and they also have underlying mitochondrial disease. Then we looked at what types of things might be done in the middle of an acute illness or infection that might make mitochondrial symptoms worse. And slide 53 quickly covers those. Um, and again, for time's sake, I'm not going to go through each of these specifically, but just more to um, direct you to the types of things that we covered. And then last but not least, we looked at um, vitamins and which vitamins might we recommend. And here, you guys might be surprised, but in fact, most vitamins didn't make the cut. That while we all know that there are things that we use for what we consider the mitochondrial cocktail, the science is definitely not there. And so their consensus was that all we could really recommend is coenzyme Q10. And then it took a long time to find the correct wording. It basically, we said CoQ10 should be offered. Um, but, but outside of CoQ10, as to which type of formulation, which brand, whether we need to check blood levels, we were not sure. We couldn't make recommendations. The only other vitamins that made this cut are alpha-lipoic acid and riboflavin. Um, as far as things that should be used for all patients. Folinic um, acid, because some mitochondrial disorders can cause folate deficiency in the brain, um, was something else that we considered using, but selectively. Carnitine did not make the cut as something that should be offered to every patient. We were, in general, against a supplement-based, a cocktail-based approach that we should start one vitamin at a time for several months to see if it was helping before continuing it. Um, and um, we did not find any evidence to say that you could change your diet to help improve your mitochondrial symptoms in the sense of if you didn't have complex one working well in your muscle biopsy or complex two, could you go to a high fat or a high carbohydrate diet and help things along? And I know there are clinicians out there who are making these recommendations, but we couldn't find anything to back it up enough to make it a recommendation or guideline. Um, and we really didn't know what to do, you know, as to monitoring any vitamin level. Um, we just said that definitely if there's deficiency, we need to fix those levels. But outside of that, right now, we just need to wait and see. Um, this definitely does not mean that any other vitamins that you or your physician may have put you on need to be automatically stopped. But it was just that there was not enough science backing some of these things up for us to make a formal recommendation about them. What are we planning on working on next? It's called preventative care guidelines. What to do? How often do you get EKGs? How often do you get an echo? How often do you get hearing testing? How often do you get any blood work of any type? And we still need data for that. Fortunately, the group in the United Kingdom 
which is the Newcastle group, has already worked on this a little bit, and they already have some preliminary data up there. Um, but we hope in the near future um, to be able to provide some sort of formal recommendations for North America as well. So <clears throat> the nice thing about this article is that we were definitely able to find out, or not this article, but this whole endeavor was that we were able to find and prove that there is unfortunately a lack of consensus in the field. Too many people are doing things their own way. There was clear-cut agreement that that needed to stop, that things need to be so that you can go to two or three different centers and end up with an awfully similar answer, if not identical answer, and a very similar set of recommendations. Fortunately, the 20 or so people who were part of this project are like-minded enough that while we came up with these consensus criteria, we hope that we can move forward and utilize these criteria to um, allow for consensus to occur in the field. But there are more than 20 practicing mitochondrial experts or specialists out there. And so we know that some of this um, lack of consensus is going to remain. And, and so we know that this ball is going to get moved forward slowly, but we're just happy to be able to be moving it forward in the right direction. Um, that's it for me for now, and I'll be available for questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Parikh. So before we open up for questions, I just want to uh, reiterate, you know, from the patient community perspective how um, important the work that the Mitochondrial Medicine Society is doing and how important it is because certainly the patients and the families um, feel a little stuck in the middle between this lack of consensus. And um, and so it, it, it has been difficult as a patient community to, you know, perhaps hear that, oh, I'm taking this and someone else is doing that, and there are different recommendations. And so um, we struggle as a community on, on the bigger picture because then it's becomes very difficult for us to then advocate for things like insurance coverage, right, when when no one can even agree on, what should be prescribed, much less be covered. You know, that, and that's absolutely true. And I, I think you know one of our um, rationales for creating this document. I mean, there was a few, but one of them includes. You know what? If you're a um, more of a generalist, but want to get the evaluation started and want to know what the gold standard is, at least at this point in time, here's what you might do. You know, some many of our families live farther away from mitochondrial centers, and we do need their local regional provider to help manage things in the interim. And we hope this document can serve as a guideline for them. And then third, absolutely what you said, which is insurance companies need to know what the standard of care is. And up till now, nobody's written out or spelled out that this is our standard of care. And so this is meant to be a standard of care document that can be used for um, insurance providers. Now, you guys all know insurance companies, so whether or not it works is completely <laughs> separate, but at least we now finally have something that we can offer up. Absolutely, and having a high-level um, publication in the medical literature is, is a tremendous first step, and I think that um, you know we appreciate as the patient community also the effort of the physicians who are the specialists to put their heads together and try to figure out what everyone is doing to see what evolves as the standards, as a starting point, um, truly. So I do have a couple questions that have come in through email, and I'm also going to open up the lines. I will warn everybody, we lose a little bit of our call quality when we open the lines, so you can use star six to mute and unmute your own phone. So if you are on a cell phone or you have 
dogs or kids or um, other fun background noises, please um, help us out and use star six to mute and unmute your phone. And we'll take questions and we'll just do the best we can like it's a virtual classroom. So I'm going to unmute the callers now. Okay, and like I said, I have a couple questions that have come in from emails, but I'll go ahead and take a live question to start. So who would like to jump in and ask the first question? Hello, my name is Lisa. I would, if that would be okay. Go ahead. Um, I was just wondering if um, he, he spoke, Dr. Preeky spoke about a disease versus dysfunction. If, the, if a genetic mutation has been classified as disease causing, then that is that definitely means it's mitochondrial disease and not dysfunction, correct? Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Let me mute everybody so we don't get that echo, Dr. Preek. Bear with me. Okay. Go ahead, Dr. Preek. So I can spend a little bit of time on this because this is definitely an area of challenge for not just families but even physicians. But when we say primary mitochondrial disease, it's meant that there is a DNA defect that is causing um, or keeping the mitochondria from being built and working properly. Um, and DNA equals genetic. So anything that has to do with DNA, we use the term genetic. And and when we go looking in DNA for mistakes or typos, um, any mistake or typo we find, we call a mutation. But mutation in the lay uh, public, in you know pop culture, has the a negative connotation. A mutation must be bad. But in the medical world, mutation doesn't automatically mean bad. Mutation is just somebody found a typo in the book of DNA that doesn't belong. And so mutations get broken down into three types. One is pathogenic or problematic. Pathogenic means this is a bad mutation. This is most likely or definitely causing human disease. And so if a patient is found to have a pathogenic mutation affecting how mitochondria work, whether in the regular DNA or in the mitochondrial DNA, yes, we... we are done as far as diagnostic testing goes that, yes, they have primary mitochondrial disease. But there are two other types of mutations. So one is a benign mutation. And all of us in our book of DNA have typos, and our DNA book is littered with typos, and most of these are benign mutations. It just runs through certain families or through certain ethnicities, and many times the lab calls those, and they don't even uh, comment on them. You don't even hear about benign mutations. Um, unless they're in areas of certain interest. But the third type that's actually the most troubling are called variants. So they find a typo, a lab company looks at the DNA and they find a typo, but they're not sure what it means They've, because there's not a database that's described it. And uh, so it could be a problem, but it could be completely harmless. And those things are called variants. You might also see your reports say variants of unknown significance or VUS. And VUS is um, the more DNA we are able to look at, the more the odds are that your report is going to contain VUSs or variants. Now, 90% of the time, most variants end up being benign and harmless, but they end up creating a lot of anxiety or worry for families and even physicians. But most variants end up turning out to be benign, especially in the mitochondrial DNA. But some of the times, these variants are not benign. Um, and there are ways that we have of trying to sort that out, including testing parents and other family members and seeing if it does run in your family, especially if it runs in your family and it's in people who have absolutely no other symptoms, it most likely is a benign condition. And there are some 
software programs that the labs run to help us sort this out. Um, but what the person who was asking the question said is their DNA reports that pathogenic mutation, and if it truly is in an area involved in building the mitochondria, absolutely. Then we would say, yes, this is primary mitochondrial disease. Great. Thank you for digging into that a little uh, further because I do think that that was an important point from earlier in your presentation that um, that is confusing as we now are able to identify mitochondrial dysfunction. It, you know, it seems like a very gray area between dysfunction and disease when perhaps you're the person with the symptoms or you're looking at uh, multiple family members with soft symptoms and trying to figure out what's going on. Um, is there anything else that you would want to comment about just clarifying how the perspective of specialists like yourself differentiate between mitodysfunction and mitodisease? Sure. So, you know, all the testing that you guys may have had done in blood and urine outside of DNA testing, things called amino acids, organic acids, lactate levels, um, carnitine levels, muscle biopsies being sent for enzyme studies, um, muscle biopsies being looked at under a microscope, all of those things are what we consider tests of function. Is the factory working up to speed or not? Um, or is it working a bit slower than it should? That's all it tells us. It doesn't tell us why. It doesn't tell us that is there a problem in the blueprints to build this mitochondrial factory, because that would be primary mitochondrial disease, or is this more there's something else going on in the body something around the compound of this factory or within the factory, like a hurricane, keeping this factory from working well. We call that secondary mitochondrial dysfunction. And the test results, unfortunately, can look identical or very similar in the blood, urine, um, and um, muscle biopsies. Now, there are um, exceptions to this. Some families, some patient stories combined with how abnormal these results are, even if we're not able to pinpoint a DNA cause in this day and age, we are still very worried and worried to the point and convinced to the point that this is mitochondrial disease, we'll use the label even though we don't have DNA confirmation. But for most other patients, especially if the story is not fitting to a T and the lab work is a little abnormal, but not absolutely a home run, everything abnormal, Many of these patients are now getting reclassified as saying, yeah, we found some unhealthy mitochondria. We found mitochondrial dysfunction. We don't know why yet. We don't know if it's primary or if you've got something else going on causing this. And, and that is a bit of a gray zone for families to, or patients to end up in. And, and that can be an even tougher path to walk because we're not saying it's not. We're saying it might be. But we're trying to move away from these labels of possible, probable, definite, because you know what? They were meant as research labels, and they spilled over into the clinical world, and one person's possible is another's probable, and even as a patient, you interpret these things differently. Um, to me, if I'm told I possibly have something, I read up all about it and worry about all the harmful things that can happen when in the doctor's mind it might be, ah, it's possible, but I'm not too worried about it, right? So it creates that um, distance between what one person's thinking and what the other one is. And we have many individuals who are walking around with possible mitochondrial disease labels where we in the clinician world say, oh, yeah, it's possible, but we're not that worried about it. But the family has been extremely, I mean, they've been losing sleep over it. They're worried that their family member is going to pass away, have an early death, or have 
many other symptoms start up when, you know what, that was never the case. And so one of the other things the MMS wants to do is try to reclassify this terminology. And we're hopefully going to move forward doing that in the next couple of years so that people are using similar labels, but not nebulous labels. Great. Thank you for digging into that a little bit further. Let me open up our lines again. All right. Uh, who else would like to jump in and ask a question? I would like to ask a question. Okay, go ahead. Um, is there anyone in your group that is looking at um, geriatric issues? Um, that's an easy question to answer. That <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> so um, there is a positive of adult trained experts in the field. That's part one. Um, so, um, and mostly they are the ones who are interested in geriatric issues in mitochondrial disease patients. Um, we do have some people now, though, who are adult trained. Amal Kara and, at Boston is wonderful, and she is very well trained, and she is an adult internist by training before she went into genetics training. And so she exclusively, I shouldn't say exclusively, predominantly sees adult patients. Um, but, um, so that's that's one issue is that there aren't enough adult trained pe people in the field. But the second is there's a twist to that. We know that aging in general, in part, happens because your mitochondria start getting unhealthy. We just consider this a state of being human. But the researchers in aging, people who are doing dementia research, Alzheimer's research, and just research of aging, have long known that the mitochondria hold the answer to slowing down some of these problems. And so those areas of medicine have a tremendous wealth of mitochondrial knowledge. And um, just recently, with um, a variety of the advocacy organizations and the NIH getting interested, have started trying to get these researchers talking to the mitochondrial disease researchers in the hopes of some what we call cross-pollination, having some thoughts cross both sides in ways that we really hadn't considered mitochondria um, in the hopes that it helps us learn new things about how we can help um, families and patients. Great. Thank you, Dr. Parikh. Dr. Parikh, I'm going to push us forward so we have time for a couple more questions. Uh, got a question in from email. A few questions I'll address. One question from Lisa. Going back to your comment that uh, one of the hallmark characteristics of mitochondrial disease is that it is a progressive degenerative disorder. But um, many families, I think, would say, well, um, we have our ups and downs. So could you talk a little bit more about what defines that progressive nature of the disease. And oh no, that, that's a that's a great question because we worry about this. So those of us who see patients with mitochondrial disease know that there are at least two or three flavors of mitochondrial disease. There is the kind that strikes hard and fast and then moves forward in the wrong direction very quickly. But there is also the kind that strikes and then things settle. And then there are long plateaus for periods of time, and then there might be another stepwise decline, sometimes years later. And then there's the third type, which has a slow, steady deterioration over time. And so those of us who practice mitochondrial medicine know that there are these kind of three types, and depending on the subtype of mitochondrial disease you have, we might be able to guide you as to what to expect. We feel, and I, this may be a misperception on our part, but we feel that the lay public, including 
uh, non-specialty physicians, but even families and um, patients think that mitochondrial disease is automatically a rapidly progressive degenerative disease. And we try very hard to convince our patients and families, especially when it's not the case, that no, you don't have to worry about that. We have to keep tabs on these 10 things, but you have something akin to diabetes with possibly some more severe symptoms periodically, but something much more chronic. Um, Great. Thank you for uh, digging into that a little bit. And then um, another person emailed a question um, asking, you know, in surveying these doctors, what's the level of optimism that effective treatments are being developed and that, you know, we can actually expect as a community improvements in treatment approaches? I I think um, things have kind of come to a head as far as that goes. I I would say that for a long time we – all knew that we didn't have anything better, and the supplements were hit or miss, often miss, as far as doing any, um, you know, objective good. Um, But in the last five years, we finally have easily half a dozen to a dozen drug companies that have taken interest in mitochondrial medicine, um, mostly because they're learning that if they could help mitochondria work better, you know, they're not going after mitochondrial disease patients because they're not going to, you know, it's always about being able to make money after developing these drugs. But they know that mitochondrial dysfunction is so important for diseases that are much more common, like diabetes, like um, heart disease um, and heart failure, that their hope is that, okay, we develop a drug for mitochondrial disease, which is a less common group of diseases, but then we can take those findings and how this drug works and extrapolate it to things that are much more common so that many more doctors can write a prescription for it. But fortunately, for the first time in in ever, there are now easily about a dozen drug companies that are interested looking and developing drugs for mitochondrial disease, and, and a few have actually started entering what we consider human trials. The challenge is, is that, you know, the wheels of medicine really do move forward slowly in our own lifetimes. Um, you know, in the grand scheme of things, the amount of knowledge that mitochondrial medicine has accumulated in just the last 10 to 15 years is tremendous. For other fields, it often took, you know, 30, 40, 50 years for that. And so the hope is that even with drug development, that we have a prescription we're going to be able to write in the near future. But things really do need to go by their, um, the way they're meant to because what has happened in many other fields is that because a drug has been developed and it shows some promise, it gets into clinical use too quickly. And then it starts getting prescribed. And then after 10 years of actually using it, people realize that it really wasn't all that good of a drug. And I think we'd all like to avoid that for our mitochondrial patients because the more drugs that come out there, the less likely there are going to be drug companies developing newer drugs because they think that now the field has been saturated. So we only want a drug coming out if it's really going to be something that will work and help our families. Um, And uh, Dr. Parikh, do you have time for a couple more questions? We're right at 1 o'clock, and I am so Oh, I'm I'm doing okay, yeah. Okay, so we'll take a couple more questions. I'm going to open up the lines again. I had a couple good questions come in. Hold on. Okay. Um, Sherry, you had sent me a question by email. Are you there? Would you ask your question? 
Sherry, are you there? You want to ask your question? Yeah, I'm sorry. I was on mute and forgot I was on mute. Oh, that's fine. Good. Go ahead. Um, We've been told for a long time that mitochondrial disease affects us all differently depending upon the metabolic pathways that are affected. So when we come to this consensus, are we kind of putting that idea aside that um, we have all these different experiences, metabolic pathways that could be affected? Um. I, I would say yes and no. Uh, the, the easy answer is, you know, for the diagnosis of mitochondrial disease, it should be awfully similar for everybody. You know, we assess all of the metabolic pathways, blood, urine, less often muscle now. We should be looking at the same groups of genes using the same technology because the genetics of mitochondrial disease is similar. Regardless of the mitochondrial disease you have, we should be still looking at the same regions in the book of DNA. The treatment and management absolutely needs to be individualized. And and I think that's where some finesse is going to be needed when we come up with management guidelines, you know. And and that's where there may be some patients who very much do respond to carnitine, even though carnitine is not a blanket recommendation. So um, I, I think for treatment and management, we definitely not, you know, while there should be consensus on what works and what doesn't work, it, it should not be the exact same model for every person. Uh, but our hope is over time that, you know what, if you have Lee syndrome and we know why you're having Lee syndrome, that we're able to um, manage that very similarly for every individual. And I suspect we're going to learn that there are subtypes of Lee syndrome. We've already learned that, that some Lee syndrome cases move very quickly. Um, and some um, don't, that that you know, they live for another 20, 30, 40 years. And, and so those patients are going to have to get managed differently. And and so some of that, those nuances, being able to come up with that, um, first we need the knowledge and then, then the plan. Thank you. I had myself on mute as well, so uh, <laughs> I um, was talking away, asking for questions from the callers. So I uh, wanted to ask a question on behalf of a couple people who had emailed. So Christy had sent in a good question, asking um, to refer back to your comment between autism and mito being largely genetic, yet um, I think many of the patients who have mito and autism also believe in environmental factors. Was that mentioned at all in your survey amongst mito doctors, or is that of interest to the Mitochondrial Medicine Society? Um, So not exactly, because I think what we were looking for specifically was did people think that Mitochondrial dysfunction in autism, was it a primary disease or secondary? That's one key piece we were looking at. And then second, if you have mitochondrial dysfunction, could we tell those autism patients apart from other patients with autism and no mitochondrial dysfunction? So we kind of wanted to sort those two things out um, with the initial set of surveys. But I think what we're clearly finding, I I actually am the medical director of our um, autism center, 
clinic here as well, and we see lots of patients with autism. And as the world of autism science evolves, we're finding that the majority of times, autism has genetic um, origins. The, the DNA blueprints involved in building the brain have typos or mistakes, but what we're finding in autism is, it, unlike many diseases, it's not a single mistake. It's not one big giant mistake in a brain development area. It's a lot of small mistakes. So we're finding that there's often half a dozen to a dozen small typos that each one has a cumulative effect. So if you only had two or three, it wouldn't cause problems or it might make you a little bit quirky, but that's about it. But if you start having six or seven or eight typos, now it keeps the brain from working in a way that it was intended to, and it starts creating autistic symptoms. So the research field is finding this. We don't have a smart test yet that can do this. The testing available for autism diagnosis, the genetic testing available right now, only helps us find an answer a third of the time as far as a hard DNA answer because we need a test that can find a multitude of typos and interpret these typos in a meaningful fashion. It's coming, but we don't have that yet. And yes, absolutely, we don't know quite yet why the incidence of autism has gone up. We know some of this is that we've gotten better about diagnosis, and two, we've gotten better about accurately labeling patients with autism. In the past, they were often mislabeled as having just cerebral palsy or other development disorders. So part of the increase in numbers is that, but there is a big chunk of why that number of autism cases has increased to the number it has, we're not quite sure. And I suspect there are environmental influences that impact how DNA is working that we don't understand yet and have knowledge about yet. Um, that being said, um, the majority of patients, um, the clinic actually had a research project that was run by Dr. Karis Eng, who is head of genomics here. And, and they looked at in, in Almost every patient that came through our autism center who agreed to participate at mitochondrial dysfunction and mitochondrial markers, they did not find mitochondrial dysfunction in every patient. They found mitochondrial dysfunction in, let's say, a third of patients. And so we know that mitochondrial dysfunction, along with other things, gut dysfunction, not every mitochondrial patient has uh, gut-related issues, but some definitely do. So we think it's part of the puzzle, but it's definitely not the end-all, be-all cause for the majority of patients. Great. Thank you, Dr. Parikh. And um, it's about 10 after. Do you have time for uh, one or two more questions? Sure. I, I could do one more. Okay. Super. This time I'll try not to mute myself as well. So. <laughs> okay. Opening the lines up. Who would like to ask a question? Uh, I have something connected to that with the um, with the mention of autism. And, and, and I know that, that um, environment can play a role if, if in, the, in the sense that there is a, a genetic vulnerability. So it's, it's, I, I know that when people aren't excluding the other, a lot of times when they say one, that doesn't imply excluding the other. Um, but do, some of the people who have looked into it, like Dr. Fries, I understand it, that they, they aren't necessarily a lot of genetic differences in mtDNA or in genetic coding for clear DNA that's relevant to mitochondrial function. So um, I, I don't, I, you had mentioned that, that a, a lot of it was thought to maybe be genetic with the mitoautism, and I may have misunderstood that because it was a very brief comment, and that might be what Christy was, had, had mentioned when she 
said environment. But I'm just wondering is the thought that it might be create a genetic vulnerability in something other than we think of as um, nuclear-relevant mitochondrial genes or whatever, say, I, I don't know what system, just the immune system or who knows what else, and then you would get a mitochondrial dysfunction maybe connected to a gen genetic vulnerability. And I'm just wondering because some of these folks might get panels of mtDNA and, and nDNA genes um, if they see mitochondrial dysfunction in autism, and this is a thought, if I thought you heard you say genetic, that perhaps there are genetic differences, but maybe in different systems, then create the mitochondrial dysfunction? Is that one scenario that's been thought about? So, um, so you're absolutely correct, but I think this is where we have to make um, accurate word choices that everybody agrees on. So when we use the word mutation, pathogenic mutation, we really mean that Something is disrupting, completely disrupting um, the building of that product in the body and therefore leading to human disease. That, that's, but then there are variants. So, you know, why is one family member's diabetes worse than another's? Why is Alzheimer's worse in somebody in the family compared to another? we find that there are a lot of things in the body, including our DNA and mitochondrial DNA, that influence how things express themselves. So, and, and those are variants. All of us have variants. We know that if our mitochondrial DNA came from African origins versus European origins, we have different variants. And those different variants add different levels of impact or influence to the diseases that we have. So, we know that certain variants may change the flavor of autism and or may up or down regulate mitochondrial function, right? Everything in our bodies doesn't work the same from human to human. There are some people who have much better dexterity. There are some people who are much better at sports, and there are some people who are klutzy, but we don't consider that human disease. We consider that the range of being human. And this is the same thing with mitochondrial function. There are some of us who are going to have mitochondria that are basically working at 99% capacity all of the time, and then there are those of us who are working at 93% capacity. And we are mostly generally healthy, but you may be able to pick up more mitochondrial dysfunction in those patients who are working a little bit less effectively or efficiently. And if you have mitochondria that are working less efficiently, doesn't mean you have mitochondrial disease, but you might be the person who does tire out a little bit more easily at the end of the day, you might be the patient with autism who's a bit more sluggish and a bit more sensitive to routine colds and how you might react during those times. So there are people who are looking at mitochondrial DNA variants, little changes that may upregulate or downregulate mitochondrial function and therefore impact other human diseases. But we want to be very cautious about not calling that true mitochondrial disease because all of us, feel that mitochondrial disease is a label that should be never used, <laughs> if possible, but if it is used, it's used um, sparingly and when it truly applies, because it does carry so many other um, issues with it. How rapidly the field is changing and the complexities that technology introduced, um, I mean, you know, this, ident this highlights how different approaches to diagnosis are, even then what they were, 
you know, eight to ten years ago, because now we have this technology at our fingertips, but um, but we we have a ways to go. I think in really being able to say definitively what that technology does for our community who's seeking a diagnosis. Would you agree with that? Oh, I, I would completely agree, and I, I suspect that in five years we're going to be we have more technology that's you know just on the horizon, and we'll hopefully be able to use that again to better our ability to give an accurate diagnosis, accurate label, and but I suspect that the things that we're going to be talking about are going to be different. Um, and, and it's a good thing, though. It's a good thing that this field is moving forward at a brisk pace and that we're not stuck doing the same things we were five years ago or ten years ago. Well, Dr. Parikh, on that, I'll um, bring us to a close, and I want to thank you on behalf of everyone who is joining us today and the patient and family community, and thank you and the Mitochondrial Medicine Society and mitospecialists around the country for your dedication to this group of patients. I want to direct everybody to the Mitochondrial Medicine Society website because I think there's some wonderful resources there, and I encourage anyone who has a primary care physician or pediatrician to share this website with them because as a medical society of physicians, then um, some of the resources there are of really of interest to other physicians. So that website is mitosoc.org, so M-I-T-O-S-O-C, or .org, or you might say mitosoc, S-O-C, .org. And uh, Dr. Parikh, again, I want to thank you. Is there anything else that you'd like to say? No, no, thank you, Christy, for having me. Everyone, you can find the slides for today's presentation, as I mentioned earlier, on the website. And we did record today's call, so that will be up in the iTunes podcast library, which is free. If you just search MitoAction when you're in iTunes, you'll find the MitoAction app to help track your symptoms, as well as the list of podcasts. And this one should be up by tomorrow morning. And Dr. Parikh, again, wonderful dis discussion and presentation today. Thank you so much. And everyone who joined us, thank you for spending an hour of your time with us on this Friday. And please join us for our support groups every Friday, same time, same number as you use today, and for our future speakers in April and May. Thank you, everyone. Have a great weekend. Thank you again, Thanks. Dr. Parikh. Yep. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.